Hello to all of our fundamentalists. Welcome back to season four of your favorite brown babes breaking down taboos and dissecting basic culture across the diaspora. I'm Mehek. And I'm Faiza. We are kicking off this new season with an episode on something we've touched on in our quarantine series and episodes past, the rise of the progressive movement around the country and with it the increased visibility of brown and black candidates. And now, given the events of last week, the white supremacist-led insurrection at the nation's capital, this conversation, we feel, couldn't be more timely. That said, we did record this interview with the newly elected Assemblyman Zoran Mamdani back in late December, but it's still very relevant, and we hope our conversation inspires a little hope for you about the direction of the country. Zoran Kwame Mamdani is the Assemblyman-elect for Assembly District 36 in Astoria, Queens, which just so happens to be my home. Prior to running for office, he worked as a foreclosure prevention counselor here in Queens, helping low and moderate income families, primarily of South Asian immigrant backgrounds. And Zoran got his start in organizing when he helped found the first chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine at Bowdoin College, his alma mater. After returning to New York, Zoran became uh, deeply involved in electoral organizing. He is a longtime member of the Muslim Democratic Club of New York and the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. And he immigrated to New York City with his family at the age of seven and has been here ever since. He's the first first South Asian man to ever be elected to any office in New York City, which is insane. The second person of South Asian descent to be elected to the state legislature and only the second Muslim elected to state assembly. And it wouldn't be a fundamentalist episode if it weren't for some audio quality issues. So apologies on my end for my audio. Um, but here is our interview with Zoran. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Zoran. I know you're very busy, um, newly elected to the New York State Assembly. Um, so I just wanted to jump right in with you. What made you want to run? You're relatively young. You're running against a Democratic incumbent which historically means they're going to win and they have the backing of the establishment. So what made you want to do this? So before I ran for office, I worked as a foreclosure prevention housing counselor for an organization called Chaya CDC. I worked in Jackson Heights and Richmond Hill. And I worked with low to moderate income homeowners, typically homeowners of color, immigrant homeowners who were facing eviction um, because they'd fallen behind on their mortgage, whether it was because of sudden job loss or a healthcare emergency or something unforeseen in their family. And it was my job to put their lives back together after they'd been broken into a million pieces, I would argue, by a symptom of the failure of capitalism. And the reason that I ran for office was because I see, I saw then and continue to see the potential in legislation and in the use of the office as a bully pulpit as a means to ensure that people's lives, working class people's lives especially, are never broken in the first place. Broken, rather. Um, and, and so that was kind of the, the reason that I, that I decided to do it. Um, but before making that decision, a friend of mine asked me to do it. Um, and so it was, you know, it took a few weeks of me kind of thinking about it and, and wrestling with it, and then eventually understanding it through that lens and, and deciding to throw myself fully into the deep that's, that's a really great friend yeah <laughs> that you have um so what was it about the progressive movement which seems to be really burgeoning and emerging and a lot of these policies um are largely supported by the majority of americans but what was it exactly about the progressive movement that drew you to it well you know i've um 
I would say my politics haven't changed that much from you know the beginning of my life to now, and I think a large part of that is because of the family that I grew up in. Um, my parents' politics are, um, I feel like progressive is a tame word to describe it, um, and I think so. I've always in in in, men, in different ways identified with being a progressive, but over the past. You know, I would say when Bernie first ran in 2016, I started to publicly identify myself as a socialist. And I think that even though the, the framing of the question is about like progressive issues and progressive movement, I do think the same analysis applies to socialists and the socialist movement in terms of so many Americans supporting what this would actually mean if it was trans, tra- transformed into government legislation. Um, when we talk about, you know, how do people feel about uh, a word versus how do they feel about the actual practice of that ideology. And so, you know, a lot of the same people who really have strong feelings about socialism also love um, social security or use Medicare or Medicaid or, you know, different examples of an understanding of the state's responsibility as providing dignity to working class people across the country. Um, so I think for, for me, it was kind of like a, the, these were the politics I had growing up. Then the experience of being, you know, marginalized on the basis of my race and my religion help to kind of cement those understandings of the status quo as being insufficient at the very least. Um, and then Bernie really being a catalyst to me understanding myself as a socialist and understanding that my politics aren't just, you know, left of center. They are socialist politics. They are left politics. For those of our listeners who don't know, Zoran's mother is the formidable Mira Nair, who's just such an institution, I think, in the South Asian diaspora. So you touched on this, um, and I'd love to kind of deep dive, oh gosh, deep dive into that a little bit more. What was it that you saw or you were exposed to in your childhood that did kind of shape these uh, these political beliefs from such a young age? Not just directly from your parents, not just directly from their circles, but were there other kind of larger experiences, et cetera? Yeah, I think that, you know, I'll start with my parents, which is that both of them in different ways are storytellers. Um, and they both write about... The- Iconic storytellers at that. Um, and they both write about the margins. And they do so in a way, they write, <clears throat> they they film, they they basically bring these stories um, that, you know, to paraphrase Arundhati Roy, are the stories of the preferably unheard a lot of the times. And, you know, in, in growing up in a household where a lot of the way in which I understood the world, it was informed by that understanding that we cannot, we cannot take things as they are told to us. We cannot believe in the principles and the ethos of these places as they are advertised. We have to see them as they are actually lived. And we have to see them as they are lived by those who are furthest away from the concentration of power. Um, and I think personally, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting experience because, um, in many ways I grew up with so much, right. You know, my parents have both been successful in both of their fields. Um, I never grew up with a sense of economic, you know, wor- worrying about the, the realities with regards to, can we afford something? Can we pay for something? That was something that I never had to deal with. Um, and in that way, their work was rewarded by this system of capital. And yet in other ways, growing up, there were, you know, being, being Muslim, being South Asian of South Asian origin in New York City, as I was going through adolescence, 
there were different points in which I was kind of penalized for those identities, um, made to kind of push, push into the margins myself. Um, and I think those really helped to, you know, that there's not, there's nothing like being on the margins with other people to build solidarity. Um, and, and I think that those experiences, whether it's experiences of being pulled out of class on 9-11 by my teacher, um, or it's being pulled aside by immigration agents at JFK and sitting me down in double mirrored rooms and asking me if I have intentions on attacking America or if I've attended a terrorist training camp. Um, these are these different moments in which it was made very clear. This is what people who have power, this is how they view me. Um, and this is how they view where I'm from and what I believe in. And those moments kind of make it, it's very hard to go through something like that and come out on the other side and be like, you know what? I have full faith in the people who are in power. I think they're doing a great job. Um, it, it leads you to question more and more of what it is that is the kind of governing belief of this system and what are the ways in which it comes into practice? I really, I really love that because I think what I've seen so much is within the South Asian community, those who end up being more conservative are those who have wealth and do benefit from this capital system. So I love that you had that experience, but we're still able to zoom out and see the values that were not being upheld by the system and that in terms of how it came out in English is not at all accurate, but you, I can tell by the way you're nodding your head, you understand what I'm trying to, but yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like you were set up to benefit from that system, from a fiscal perspective, from a policy perspective, and still you were able to zoom out and see on a humanitarian level, it's not right. So I really, I really love it. And I think a big part of it for me is that my parents always made it very clear to me that their success was not because they were uniquely deserving of it or that they worked much harder than others who did not have it. Um, and I think, you know, it's also very easy to learn that lesson when you have class dynamics within your own family, right? I have, well, I had, he passed away, an uncle in London who ran his own corner shop, right? And he would wake up every morning at 6 a.m. and work until the night, until he would close the shop up, running what is the equivalent of a New York City bodega, right? And I could never go, we would never go and visit them. And I could and have me come away feeling like, oh, he, the reason he's not in the same place as we are is because he's just not working hard enough, you know? And I think that if you, um, if you start to read the terms and conditions of all of these promises, whether it's the American dream or whether it's capitalism in general, you start to see that things don't really add up. There isn't a consistency as to why some succeed and why others don't. Um, and, and you realize that actually the consistency is the inconsistency of it, right? That, that there is only, there will only be wealthy people if there are those who are poor. Um, so I think that was something that I also kind of saw for myself. And I think more now than ever, especially because of the pandemic, people are seeing the 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 disparity in wealth and how how income is so stratified in this country, especially because of it's 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 beyond capitalism. It's like uber capitalism that we practice here. And there's such a sense of like American exceptionalism that blinds people to the the injustices that we endure every day. Um like you have Jeff Bezos making what is he now at a trillion 
who even knows? It's just, it's the, the idea that these people who already have billions are making billions while more and more Americans in the thousands are falling below the poverty line. Um, and, and we're still arguing in Congress about whether or not people deserve $600 or 2000 a month. Um, so you did mention kind of the, um, like reading between the, the, the lines and, and demanding more from the government, or at least making sure that you know what governments are supposed to be doing for you. So uh, as this the new administration, the Biden administration is announcing their, you know, cabinet members and all of that, is there anything that you're, what are you most hopeful for with this new administration, if there is something in particular? And what's the thing that you're kind of like keeping your eye on? I think I'm hopeful about the fact that there will be more oxygen to fight for people's dignity um, than there was in the Trump administration. Um, I think it provides more of an opportunity to be kind of forward, uh, kind of proactive as opposed to reactive. You know, there, there will be less of what just happened, what was just said, what was just done. And there will be, I think, a little more ability to to drive the narrative, to drive the day's events um, from a progressive standpoint. The thing that I still have my eye on is that um, you know, Trump didn't appear or exist in a vacuum. Right? He was enabled by the leaders and those in powerful positions of both parties. Right, For a long time before Trump was Trump on the national stage, Trump was a developer here in New York City. Right, And, and checks were given to, to, to the heads and representatives of both parties. And I think that what gives me pause is that there are a lot of people within this new administration who don't really represent a departure from so much of the policies that then led to the rise of Trump in the first place at a national level. And it's very easy to kind of look at the difference between someone like Trump and, and someone like Biden and Trump's appointees and Biden's appointees and feel a sense of relief that, oh, these are just capable professionals who are now running the show. but it's capable professionals that got us into a lot of these problems. And I think that we have to really interrogate the ideologies of a lot of these cabinet picks, as well as the president, soon to be president and, and vice president themselves, uh, because, you know, we don't get changed just by showing up on November 3rd. We have to be there on November 4th and the 5th and the 6th, because we're only going to get that which we organize for. And so I think that that would be my main message about this new administration is the pressure has to remain. Um, and frankly, it even has to escalate because we have to make it very clear that we're not just going to sit on our hands and hope for a better future, but we're going to fight for one. That's such a great point because, you know, while for so many of us, the decision was so obvious on November 3rd, it was anybody, anybody but Trump, a cat but Trump, shout out to Pfizer's cats. Um, but to your point, the work is by no means done. And these were not first choices. These were not second choices. In some instances, they weren't even 10 choices, but they were better than the incumbent. And so we're thankful that they were elected um, and still hoping they'll be sworn in, although a lot can happen in the next three weeks. But so from, from a personal perspective, as you start to kind of plot out your term in the state assembly, what are what are the challenges you're thinking about? You know, while the progressive movement has picked up a lot of steam over the past few years, it's still tough. It's still a really steep battle. So what 
do you have a game plan? What are the things that you you worry about in terms of kind of moving this agenda forward? I think what I worry about is that, um, you know, we have, there are 150, for, for those who don't know, because it's extremely complicated and kind of designed to be overwhelming. In New York State, we have, um, we have the governor and we have the state senate and the state assembly. These are basically like mirror images of the national level with Senate and Congress. So um, in the Senate, I think we have 50, uh, 65 senators. And in the state assembly, we have 150 assembly people. And Democrats have um, a majority in both. Right? We have about, I think, 40 plus, 42 maybe in the Senate, um, or 41. And, and then in the assembly, we have 107. So on the surface of it, right, things, are, things, things look great. But the problem is, as, as I think the three of us know, um, is having a D next to your name is not, not only is it not sufficient, but um, there's a wide range of what kind of policies you might be in favor of and what you're willing to fight for and where you get your money from. And the difficulty is now that the battle is internal within the party of charting the course. And there of these 107 Democrats we have in the assembly, you know, I would say that there is a really big fight to between return to normalcy style politics and realizing that normal didn't work for a whole lot of people style politics. And, you know, it's, it's difficult. I'm 29 years old. I'm, you know, the first South Asian man to ever serve in the assembly, the third Muslim to ever be there in many different ways. I'm, <laughs> thank you. In many different ways, I am not what's expected or what's associated with helping chart a course for something. And um, there will be a lot of difficulties in, in, in trying to chart a very different course because of some of the things I've just said and, and also other dynamics, um, most importantly, because no one individual can make that change themselves. So I think what's on the cards and what we have to do is do a lot of organizing because I think organizing is generally what you need to do, but especially when you don't have the numbers to win on an up and down vote, organizing is how you punch above your weight. It's how you build coalitions that are not assumed or likely. And so that's really what we have to do over these next few months and over this next session and the one after that um, is figure out a way to build out coalitions so that ideas which are typically thought of as only socialist or only progressive get support from legislators who... Um, who we take the time to make the case to that actually their constituents are the ones who will benefit the most from this kind of action. Yeah, I think that's a great PSA for why voting, especially for young people, voting in your local elections is so important. These policies are passed at the city, the, the local level before they ever make it to Congress. And if we have a groundswell of support, it, it makes it that much easier and much more palatable to people who are a little more hesitant to, they believe in Medicare for all, or they believe in a $15 minimum wage, but they're like, that's never going to work. And if we can make the, make it work on the local level, or if we get that kind of support and movement going, which is what you're seeing now with a lot of these progressive, more progressive candidates winning against incumbents, um, we can make it happen especially because we have the numbers on our side. It's that we don't have the organization on our side, especially with someone like Mitch McConnell, who represents what, like 1.3 million Americans, but is able to hold the Senate hostage. Um, it's so important to make sure that young people understand that the, the power that they do have, even though they've probably felt disenfranchised or just never received their 
civic education that would allow for that kind of engagement, I think. I tell my little cousins who this is the first time they were voting, and I was like, forget about the presidential election. I know that that's what they taught you in school, but vote down ballot and research the people who are running uh, for your city council. See who's running for state assembly. Like Those are the people that actually matter because those are the ones that are going to affect your daily life more than what's going on in Congress. Um, and that's, we, I feel like I've said that so many times in this podcast, especially. I hate capitalism. Also, that's my other, the other screed that I usually go on is uh, my anti-capitalist screed. Um, but, um, which is why I was so interested in talking to you because I remember seeing your name come up and I was like, who is this kid? Like, who is this? And I was just so excited about the platform and it made me then go down ballot and look at everybody else that was running. I looked up the judges who were running for, for, um, state, whatever positions. I looked up every single person running for any kind of local office that affected me because I was like, this is, and I'm, this is what my, third, fourth time voting in a presidential election. And the first time I ever voted for a midterm election was in 2018. And I got really lucky because I got to vote for AOC. And uh, and it makes all the difference. It really does. And it's not like a pipe dream. I think that's the other thing that people need to understand. It's not a pipe dream. And we're seeing the tide turn. Um, and we can make it turn faster if we are willing to put the time and effort into organizing properly. Um, I don't really have a question. I just wanted to say that. I have a question. I have a question. I was just going to say, you know, like I'm, I'm a fair amount older than you, but I'm inspired seeing somebody like you who's determined to make the change and goes out and does it. And I think we're living in this really exciting and interesting time period where people like you are making things like this happen with AOC, with you. So many, it seems like every year we're setting new records for youngest person to hold this office or, you know, first person of this race or this ethnicity or this color to hold this race. And it's amazing. But that said, you know, it doesn't come without its challenges by any means. So if you now looking back at your past one to two years of campaigning and the grassroots work you did to get to where you are today, what are the big lessons you learned, the most painful lessons you learned that you could pass on to others to make the path a little clearer, a little brighter, a little less. Yeah, I would say that, you know, it's, there's this really interesting, um, there are a lot of politicians who they'll be like, you know, everybody should run for office. And I think that there's a truth to that. But at the same time, I would say that you have to ask yourself why you're running. Because a lot of politics has become very much like celebrity culture. There's like a lot of worship and standing of politicians. Um, obviously, I'm like a C-list politician. I have very little experience, very little of this, right, compared to um, people who, who work in kind of larger profile positions. But it is very easy to get swept up in this, that, that I should run because I should be important, or I should run because that's the position I want to occupy in people's minds. And you have to ensure that your decision to run is not simply yours alone. If you're alone in your belief that you should run for office, then you shouldn't run for office. I would I would say generally, because it is not an individual pursuit. It is the pursuit of a collective. It will require a collective for you to win. And so my advice to people would be that if you 
find yourself frustrated, enraged, agitated by the events of our time, the first answer is not to run for office. The first answer is to become a member of an organization. It, and I would urge you to join an organization where you see your issues and causes and priorities reflected in the work they do. But frankly, even more important than that is that you see them doing work. You see them actively organizing around something. Because even if it's not the issue that you care most about, learning about the art of organizing itself is something that you can then apply to any issue at any point. Um, and for me, you know, that organization has been DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. Being a member of DSA, um, you know, I, I used to be a, kind of one of the organizing committee members for Queens DSA's electoral work. And so when Tiffany Caban ran for district attorney, I was like one of six or seven DSA reps on that campaign where we did a lot of the field work. Um, being a part of that organization is critical if you're interested in running for office because you have to ensure that what you want to do is serving the goals of the larger collective. And it's not a pursuit of ego or a pursuit of glory because so often the way in which we talk about politics, consume politics, it's so individualistic. It's a function of the society that we live in. Um, and we have to ensure that the reason we do it doesn't serve those same needs and desires, but serves a larger one. So I'd say join join an organization. My preference would be DSA, but join anyone that you feel excited by. I'm going to need the name and number of, oh, of that. Of DSA? Absolutely. So so the, so I, what I can do is I can link you. Um, they're very active on social media. And New York City DSA is the larger branch. But then DSA itself has smaller branches that are geographic. So we have a Queens DSA, we have a North Brooklyn DSA, Central Brooklyn, South Brooklyn, Staten Island, Bronx, you know, all of these different ones. Albany DSA? I think there may actually be one starting. Um, there's definite need for more upstate organizing. But I would say the oh, best no. thing to do is to just, you can just search Democratic Socialists of America and then... From there, you'll be able to find your local branch. And then from your local branch, just come to a meeting. And the beautiful thing about it is that, you know, you can join any kind of subgroup. They're called working groups that appeal to you. So if, for example, you're like, I like socialism. I like these issues. I like these causes. But my number one thing is about housing or my number one thing is about elections or my number one thing is about healthcare. You just join that group and put your time and effort into that. That is an amazing call to action. And I think a really great place for us to end. I know we're, we're out of time, but thank you so much. This was incredibly enlightening and really positive. Um, and we're really super excited to see see what you get to do when you're um, sworn Absolutely. in to the state assembly. Thank you so much. This yeah. is and we're thankful to have people like you in positions of power to change the establishment and really genuinely wish you so much success. Thank you both so much. This was so lovely. So thank you, everybody, for joining in for the first episode of our season four. Uh, new episodes drop every other Wednesday. You can check us out on Instagram at The Femdementalist for our latest episodes, behind the scenes, and more goodies. And listen, like, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.